Uh, there is a sermon outline in your order of services. You might want to pull that out. <clears throat> that might be helpful for you to follow along. Uh, let me actually uh, pray for us as we open up the Bible today, as we start our new sermon series. If you are new, a visitor here, we're glad that you are actually joining us. Uh, back to our normal sermon series where we work through books of the Bible. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you that you do reveal yourself and you speak in and through your word. We do pray and ask that you might help us now. Uh, Certainly as we come to the opening of the book of Romans, as we understand these four chapters, we do pray that um, as this book was life-changing to so many who have gone before us, as it was life-changing for the Apostle Paul, we do pray it might be life-changing for us here in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I look at the book of Romans, uh, which you guys are going to do in Bible studies at some point, it is an overwhelming book. It is a massive book. I'm overwhelmed by its size, overwhelmed by its content. Uh, John Piper, uh, many of you will know from Desiring God, he waited 18 years <clears throat> before preaching the book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of Engl- England's greatest expositors, uh, only 50 years ago, he preached the book of Romans each week for 13 years. We are not going to do that. It would kill you, <clears throat> and it would certainly kill me. Uh, but the, the letter of Paul to the Romans, what you have in front of you, is clearly Paul's clearest and greatest explanation of the Christian gospel. What is really at the heart of the Christian faith? And it's a book um, that has made significant impact on the lives of key figures in the history of the church. So it is a tremendous book, and I do want to share that with you, which is why it's great that we're actually going to be working through Uh, the book of Romans. We're only looking at the first seven chapters, uh, which will take us to the end of July. Uh, We'll take a break, and the next year, uh, we'll do a series, I suspect, on chapter 8 alone, because it's huge, chapter 8, and then at some point, we'll do chapter 9 to the rest of the the book, so we will eventually finish it. Augustine was a young man born 300 years after Jesus. He was raised in a devout Christian family. He was brought up in the Christian faith and way of life. He was highly educated in literature, philosophy, and rhetoric, public speaking. So even though he was raised in a Christian family, in his youth, he went off the rails. He rejected his faith. Uh, And so as someone who is brought up as a Christian, rejected his faith, effectively the life of the prodigal son, (coughs) he gave his life over to wild wild living, not Christian living, but wild living. Uh, He gave in to his sexual appetites and to drinking. Effectively, after that, he kept a mistress for about 15 years, even had a child with a mistress. During this time, uh, he rose to academic success, professor of rhetoric at Milan at the age of 30, uh, the most visible academic in the Latin world. In other words, he had academic standing, he had social standing, and then he shacks up with a woman for two years uh, while an arranged marriage is organized, basically a society marriage that would be useful for his political and his career advancement. And then in the summer of 386, when he's 32, he sits in a park uh, in a garden. He has everything in life, but his life is restless. Uh, He hears the singing of an unseen child repeating over and over again these words in Latin, tole lege, tole lege, take up and read, take up and read. And he did just back, he rushed home. He opened up the Bible, and the first thing he saw was Romans chapter 13. 
Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now, that's the start of Augustine's conversion through the book of Romans. He abandoned his career, (coughs) his academic position, his teaching position in Milan, And he gave himself to serving God. And his writings and his theology has influenced the church in the last 2,000 years. And so here is the life of a rebel transformed by the book of Romans. Now you fast forward 1,200 years and you read of another man, Martin Luther. And he too was brought up in a religious family. He was brought up in the fear of God. Uh, He lived his life growing up afraid of hell and judgment. And he studied law, so he was a lawyer as well. Uh, But he was so fearful of hell, he decided not to be a lawyer, and he decided instead to be a monk. Uh, He thought that the the, the way to get into heaven, the way to earn forgiveness, was by way of religion. And so he became a monk. At the age of 21, he did just that instead of becoming a lawyer. Uh, He would pray and fast for days. He took on severe disciplines from whipping, whipping himself to constant confession. He did everything to find peace with God. In fact, He did this for 11 years, living in constant fear of God, trying to make payment for his sin and his guilt. After 11 years of the religious life, in 1516, he was studying and he was teaching the book of Romans. He read these words, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so what... Luther discovered was that it's not our righteousness that actually earns God's forgiveness. It's not our righteousness that gets us right with God. He discovered it's got nothing to do with us. A righteousness that comes, notice, through faith in the Lord Jesus, a righteousness that Jesus gives. And that transformed his life. He begins to teach that truth, and then he comes to blows with the Roman Catholic Church. But a life transformed as well, a religious life transformed by the good news in the book of Romans. And so, I tell you those stories because Augustine was a rebel, the irreligious. He lived like the prodigal son for self, no interest in God. Martin Luther was religious, living like the religious son, trying to earn his way with God. Both lives transformed by the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans can and will change your life because I suspect all of you, you sit on those two spectrums here in this room. Whether you are a rebel or whether you are religious, whether you are secular or whether you are Christian, if you're a young Christian, this letter will give you a rock to stand on for the rest of your life. If you're an older Christian, this letter will actually deepen your experience of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. If you're not a Christian this letter will actually confront and really, really challenge you. I hope you keep coming back. You'll discover, I suspect, you are far weaker and far more sinful than you care to admit, but you are far more loved and far more accepted than you ever dare hope for. So what makes this book so powerful and life-changing? I actually want to start with verse 16 and verse 17 that Robin read for us. The reason why the book of Romans has worked so powerfully Because in it, you find a very powerful message. You find the very heart of the good news in verse 16 and verse 17, which means that 
uh, as we work through the book of Romans in the coming weeks, we're going to keep coming back to verse 16 and verse 17 because they, are, uh, they summarize or the very heart, basically, of the message of the book of Romans. And so there you read, notice what Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news because, why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the explosive power of God, the life-shattering power of God. It's right, and it's for everyone who believes. It's not, uh, it's not, you know, it's it, it's not limited to a particular culture or age group or tribe. Notice it's for all who believe. First for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. For in this good news, notice a righteousness from God is being revealed. A way to be right with God is what breaking through. A righteousness that comes by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, we're going to keep coming back to that verse again and again and again, right? Keep that in mind as we read the book of Romans together. Romans is the exposition or the explanation of the power of God to save, right? That's what it's going to be about. Uh, And we'll see why that is life-changing in a moment. Now, a bit about the church at Rome. So, you know something about the church of Rome? This is a bit of a background. Uh, The church of Rome, Paul writes to this church, uh, was an established church. So it's a well-known church. Paul had heard about them. You read in verse 8. We'll eventually come to that verse 8. Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. In other words, uh, they're a well-known church, established church. Um, and not unlike our city, Rome was a very cosmopolitan city, <laughs> multicultural city, multi-religious city. But Rome was also a very powerful city. Because think of it, right, um, we, we're living in, in, in the, the city of Rome, effectively, is the heart of the capital, uh, is the heart of political power, uh, is the heart of academic power, is the heart of social power, is the heart of military power. Why? Because it's the capital city, uh, the home of the emperor, uh, the sun, the eternal city in the eyes of those who worship the emperor. Remember that saying, uh, those of you who know, remember we've got a saying in English, all roads lead to Rome? right? And that, and that captures the sense of the city's political and religious, cultural, social, and military power, uh, because it's a city at the center of the empire. And, and Paul writes against that backdrop. Paul writes of the good news of the Christian faith and the power of God against the backdrop of the power of Rome, the power of the sun, the emperor who is worshipped. And so you might not realize this, but the opening verses, verse 1 to verse 4, certainly verse 2 to verse 4, isn't just a statement of religious belief. It's also very politically charged. uh, Because when you get to verse 4, Paul makes it clear that it's Jesus Christ who is our Lord, not the Roman emperor. Okay? Uh, It's actually politically charged. We bow the knee to Jesus, not to the political powers of our day. That actually says a lot. I mean, he's writing to Rome, but that actually even says a lot to our city, isn't it? Uh, especially when we consider the state of things in our city uh, and many of the laws that are actually changing, the religious laws. Uh, it's a church Paul has not planted, a church he hasn't built. And, and the reason why Paul writes to Rome is basically he wants to introduce himself because he doesn't know them, they don't know him. He wants to encourage them, and he wants to prepare, basically, for his wider mission. And so his great plans in chapter 15 is... He's going to come to the city of Rome. He's going to use it as a base uh, for, his, for his mission work, basically, uh, for his future mission work uh, to the Gentiles. And so that's what he's going to do. So he's introducing himself. 
Now, verse 1 and verse 4, we're now going to come to verse 1 and verse 4. It's a fairly long introduction. Uh, it's not surprising because they don't know him. And, and, and basically what Paul's going to do, if you have your Bibles, you might want to open to Romans 1, verse 1 and 4. Paul's going to do two things. Number one, he's going to define who he is by the message of Christianity, by the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith. Okay, so that's the first thing he's going to do. He'll define himself by the gospel, and then he's going to outline the content of the heart of that good news. Okay, so that's all he's going to do in these four verses. We're going to look at it this, this morning. Uh, and so here's the first one. Paul introduces himself, verse 1. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, often when you meet people, we often ask people what they do, what they study. In fact, we define people, and we actually also define ourselves by our work, where we study, which school we go to, what education we have, <coughs> what kind of work we do, right? Arts or science, lawyer, doctor, accountant, financial planners, right? I'm a consultant at EY, tax lawyer at Macquarie Bank, studying architecture at Uni, Uni New South Wales, MBA at Macquarie, look after client services at TikTok maybe, auditor for CBA, optometrist at Specsavers, right? Like Tim, I saw Tim walk in, I went, oh, optometrist, Specsavers, right? And so it's interesting because a lot of people actually define themselves by their work or their field of study. We all do. It's what gives them their worth and value. It's certainly on your LinkedIn profile. And so for some people, our worth and value is tied up to our academic and professional power. Uh, but for some of us, uh, we define ourselves by our tribe, the clothes we wear, the music we listen to, right? I don't know, did you go to Harry Styles or Jay Chow last night? Right? I don't know, right? Some of you here, you won't admit, okay? Right, well, we, we associate ourselves by the social group we attach ourselves to. That's why the things people post on Insta and TikTok, what people post on social media is often a reflection of how they want to be seen, how they want to be defined. It's what gives them worth and value. And so for some people, our worth and value is tied up with our social power. Uh, some of us define ourselves by our wealth and position. We define ourselves by what we own, our investments, our place on the ladder of career advancement, our pay scale, our purchasing power. And so for some people, our worth and value is tied up with our economic power. So, so listen very carefully to, to this. Everyone defines themselves by something in life that gives them worth and value, that gives them security and significance, that gives them power in life. Academic and professional power, social power, economic power, any one of those things. Now look with me at verse 1, because Paul defines himself by what? The gospel. Can you see there? A gospel he will soon explain. Paul defines himself not by his academic achievements, not by his profession, not by his social standing, not by any works or achievements. Notice, he defines himself by the power of the gospel, by the gospel of God. Actually, it says by the gospel of God. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, notice, for the gospel of God. That's how he defines himself. Now, I do want you to understand something about the Apostle Paul. I've got a whole stack of Bible verses there in your outline. I'm not going to look at them all. Just give you a very quick uh, background to the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> he was born in a place called Tarsus, which is basically a university city in the Greek-speaking world, which means highly educated. Came from a well-known fa family. Uh, we know he was educated in a secular university because when you look at the preaching of the Apostle Paul, he often quotes the Greek poets. Uh, and so you begin to discover that uh, he's a guy who is, basically, he has academic and intellectual power. But then we also read he was trained in the Jewish laws and traditions in Jerusalem. We know he trained under uh, Gamaliel, 
not the Jedi master of the day, the Jewish rabbi of the day, uh, who is at the very center of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. Uh, and then you, you discover he's also the son of a Pharisee. So it was, he was a practicing Pharisee. In other words, he's part of the religious social elite. Okay, So passionate did he live as a Pharisee, he persecuted the church. And so you begin to discover that he's also got religious and social power. Okay? Now, this is what defined Paul. Academic and intellectual power, religious and social power. And if you turn with me to Philippians 3, right? this is the only other passage we're going to be looking at outside the book of Romans. Philippians 3, verse 4 to verse 9, Robin read this for us as well. You'll see what I mean. Because these are the things that define Paul. This is what gave him his worth and value in life. This is what gave him his security and significance in life. This was Paul's glory list. Now, everyone in this room has a glory list in life. We all have a glory list that we believe will save us. That's what a glory list is, something we attribute worth and value to, security and significance, that we think will save us. Um, You know, salvation is not a religious thing. Uh, If you're a regular at Grace Point, that's worth actually reminding yourself as you engage in the world around us. Salvation is not a religious thing because everyone is looking for salvation in life. Something that will save them from some struggle, some suffering, some shortcoming, some adversity, some loneliness, some hardship. Everyone, Everyone in life is looking for salvation. The religious, they look for it in some ultimate religious work. The academic looks for it in ultimate academic success. The lonely looks for it in the ultimate love relationship. The sick looks for it in ultimate physical healing. The professional looks for it in that ultimate career. And so here's the thing, right? Religious people, secular people, everyone's looking for salvation from something in their lives. Something powerful enough to give them worth and value. Something powerful enough to give them security and significance. That's why, whether you realize it or not, religious or secular, everyone in this room has a glory list made up of people, pursuits, and possessions. Okay? People, pursuits, and possessions that you believe is powerful enough to save you. Now, notice what Paul says, Philippians 3, verse 4. This is where he says, I used to put my confidence, my hope, my assurance. This is what defined me. And the word there is, notice, the flesh. The flesh. My upbringing, my culture, my social standing, my works, my performance, my achievements. And so you read verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. In other words, Paul looked to find his salvation, his worth and value in life, his security, his significance in all these things. His upbringing, his culture, his social standing, his religious works, his performance, and his, and his, and his achievements. Can you see that? Religious people look to find salvation in religious work, the flesh. Secular people also look to find salvation in secular work, the flesh. They are no different. What binds them together is that word, the flesh. People look to find their worth and value, their security, their significance in the power of their works. Now, Paul says, no more. His works no longer defines his life. I counted a loss. Look at verse 7, verse 8. Food and fuel for the rubbish bin, for the garbage tip. 
he moves really at that point from putting confidence in himself and his works to putting confidence, notice verse 9, look with me at verse 9, in a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness that is given to him, external to him. He moves really from defining himself by his own works to defining himself in terms of Jesus' work for him that he receives by faith. He moves from defining his relationship to God in terms of his righteousness to defining his relationship to God in terms of, notice, Christ's righteousness that is received by faith. In other words, what, what you see here is that Paul actually moves from defining himself through a worth and value that he is trying to earn in his life to defining himself through a worth and value that God gives him in Jesus. He moves from trying to find uh, a security and significance uh, that he's trying to achieve in his achievements to a security and significance that is given to him in the Lord Jesus. Now, I do want to say this, right? Uh, if you are not a Christian, maybe you've got friends who are not Christians. This is what makes Christianity different from any other religious or secular worldview. Because it's a way to be right with God, right, versus a way, <laughs> a way to be right with God through your works, versus a way to be right with God that God gives you. Uh, uh, a, a, a worth and value that God gives you versus a worth and value that you earn. Uh, a security and significance that God actually gives to you versus a security and significance that you have to achieve in life. There's two ways to live, isn't it? But you notice that in Christianity, salvation is never determined by your works or your performance. Uh, your worth and value is not determined by how successful you are. Right? Your security and significance isn't determined by your morality of achievements in life. Paul says no to works. I found it all instead, notice, in the power of God to save. Not in the power of my career, not in the power of my social standing, not in the power of love relationship, not in the power of my finances. No, I found it in the power of God to save. That's why verse 16 to verse 17, chapter 1 is so important. We keep coming back to that. Let's come back to Romans chapter 1. Notice verse 16, verse 17. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save that brings salvation to everyone who works for it. No, to everyone, right, who believes. Who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is being revealed, received by faith. It comes by faith, trusting basically. Imagine that, a worth and value that you receive, a security and significance in life that you receive, not based on anything you do, not based on people, pursuits, and possessions. Now, if you're a regular here at Grace Point, and I know many of you here, it's worth asking, isn't it? Is this where you have found your salvation in all of life? Let me ask you that question. Is this where you have found your salvation in all of life? Is this where you have found your worth and value in all of life? Is this where you have found your security and significance in life? In your works and pursuits and achievements in life or in the power of God to save you in the Lord Jesus Christ? And, and it's a question that you want to keep coming back to, right? Do you truly believe in the power of God to save you or do you believe in the power of certain people, certain pursuits, certain possessions to save you? And that's a question we'll keep coming back to. 
Now, notice verse 1, quickly, three things. Paul defines himself, notice, here is a man whose self-image, whose life has been tattooed over, bonded over, written over, taken over by the Lord Jesus. He sees himself, firstly, notice, as a servant of Jesus. He's a slave. He defines himself as a servant of Jesus. And that's, that's, that's very humbling, because we've seen the background to the Apostle Paul. Proud, self-sufficient, social, academic, intellectual, religious elite. Pharisee, educated, accomplished. To one who is no longer his own in any way. <coughs> Interesting, isn't it? Because Paul is not talking about his Christian life or church life. He defines who he is, his whole life, as a servant of Jesus. He's owned by Christ Jesus, under the rule of Jesus, under the mastery of Jesus, which is really a description of what it means to be a Christian. Do you know that? Someone whose life has surrendered, really, to the power of God to save, under the rule of Jesus. Uh, in fact, we're going to see later in the book of Romans, uh, in the book of Romans, you're going to discover that they're only in, in God's economy, there are only two groups of people. Uh, everyone is a slave, right? There are only two possibilities. It's true of the religious, true of the secular Uh, Paul will go on to say, you are either a slave to God or you're a slave to everything and anything else in life. Everyone's a slave. Uh, In fact, right now, everyone in this room is is in bondage to something or someone. Everyone in this room is in bondage to some power in life that they believe will save them. Some work, some relationship, some achievement, some pursuit, some position that you think has the power to give you the worth and value and security and significance you are looking for. Paul says he's a servant of Jesus. He belongs to Jesus. Do you? But secondly, notice he's also called an apostle. Uh, His life is defined by God's call in his life to be an apostle to the gospel, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle basically in the New Testament is someone who who is sent. Uh, You've got apostle with uh, little a, someone who's sent, really plants a church and stuff like that. But you've also got apostle... Uh, capital A, and Paul is a capital A apostle. Why? Because he's met the risen Jesus, and he was personally commissioned by the risen Jesus to go and be uh, bearer of the gospel to the Gentile world, right? There's a couple of verses there you can look up later. Paul is one of those capital A apostles. But then you read a third thing. Notice what else defines Paul. Servant of Jesus, apostle set apart, notice, for the gospel of God. Previously set apart as a Pharisee, now set apart for the gospel of God. Previously set apart to keep the law, now set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, previously defined by the power of his good works, his morality, his culture, his social standing to give him worth and value, his intellect, his profession to give him security and significance, now defined by the gospel of God, the power of God to save him. And so verse 1 is a summary of the life-changing power of the gospel in Paul's life. This is what saved him in the transformation that he experienced. From works-dependent man to gospel-of-God-dependent man. That's what you get in verse 1. And then for the very first time in the book of Romans, you now hear that word gospel, okay? Occurs six times in in chapter 1. Now, that word gospel is a key word because it's actually what the book of Romans is about, right? The unpacking of the the gospel of God. Uh, It's a letter that outlines the good news of Jesus. And the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul calls it, verse 1, God's gospel. In other words, it belongs to God. It comes from God. Uh, It's a a good news that belongs to God and comes from God. It's what defined uh, Paul's. It's what has captured Paul. Uh, 
Now, often when we hear gospel, we think of it only as a message. Uh, the content of the Christian message, which we summarize in that word gospel, right? Uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that the word gospel conveys so much more. Uh, it's meant to actually communicate the idea of momentous news, life-changing news. It's the kind of news that when you hear, your life cannot be the same, okay? That's the idea behind the word gospel in the New Testament world. Uh, the word was actually used, commonly used, to actually speak of the birth of a king, right, or the enthronement of a new king, because normally what happens is, if there's a new king, then life can never be the same. It's going to be life-changing. It's also the word that's actually used to speak of victory that comes from the battlefield. The king has triumphed, and if the king has triumphed, it means we are saved. Isn't that interesting? Because if the king has won the great battle, it means we are saved. And so the messenger comes from the battlefield, he raises his right hand, and he cries out, Greetings, we have won. We have triumphed. The king has won. We are saved. Okay? And so it's good news, but it's not just good news, it's life-changing good news. Because when there is victory, what happens? There is now peace and prosperity. There's now security and safety because it comes as good news. Now, that's the idea behind the word. Notice what Paul says. His is a life set apart for the gospel of God, the victory and triumph of God, declaring the start of God's new rule, declaring God's victory. We are saved. Or as verse 16 and verse 17 says, the good news is the power of God to save. Now, if you come down to verse 3 and verse 4, you read, that the gospel of God centers on the Son, regarding His Son. It's all about Jesus, okay? And so you discover the good news is about, is, is the news, uh, is the declaration of God's good news, God's victory, God's triumph, His saving work, and it centers on Jesus. And the book of Romans is going to unpack for us God's victorious work of saving in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why your life and my life in light of this gospel can never be the same. It doesn't just change stuff in our life, it's life-changing news for our world, okay? Now, verse 2 to verse 4, we're going to look at this now. Verse 2 to verse 4 gives us the content of the gospel as it centers on the Lord Jesus. And there are three things there I want to highlight. There's actually a lot more stuff in there. <clears throat> it was funny because last week the pastors who were preaching this passage met last week, and they spent about an hour and a half discussing this passage, and they said, <coughs> so much stuff in this passage, what are, we, what are we going to do this week? And I actually said, very simple, I said, the last time I preached Romans 1 verse 1 or 4, I preached five sermons on it. And then they all said, no, we don't want to do that, there's even more work. So, so, so we're going to do it in summary fashion today, but look at verse 2 to verse 4, because there are three things there about Jesus, who is at the very heart of the good news, Okay. So here's the first one. Notice verse 2. It's good news promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, this is good news God has planned. That's worth writing down. It's good news God has planned. In fact, if you are here and you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe you've never read it, you've got friends who've never read it, or maybe if you're a regular you know, and at school, your friend actually says to you, Michaela, what's the Bible about? It makes no sense to me. This is how you're going to answer them. It's here in verse 2. The Bible is all about the unfolding story of God's promise to save in Jesus. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is the unfolding story of God's promise to save in Jesus. 
right? It, it's unfolding. As the story of the Bible unfolds, it's telling us about what God is going to do to save in Jesus, because that's what verse 2 is saying. It's good news promised beforehand through the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophet Moses, prophet David, he was a king, but he was also a prophet, the major and minor prophets. Notice the Bible is not a book telling you how you can save yourself. It, it's not a manual of good works, how you can earn God's forgiveness or salvation. That's not what the Bible's about. According to Paul, the Bible is the unfolding story of God's promise to save in Jesus. God's promise to fix our broken lives, and our broken world. That's what the Bible's about. The good news is that God's promise to do something to fix our broken lives and our broken world has come true in Jesus. That's what it's about. Now, on the other occasion, someone will go, oh, I don't believe that. Well, this is what I would say to them. Do you believe the world you live in is a broken place? Of course you do. Because we look around, we see a world marked by injustice and poverty and suffering and evil. Of course you do. The fact that you care about injustice and poverty and suffering and evil means you believe the world needs saving. Everyone does. The existence of NGOs and aid agencies and advocacy groups actually tell us two things. Whether you are a Christian or whether you are not a Christian, religious or whether you are secular, it tells us two things. We believe the world is a broken place. We live in a world that needs salvation. We all believe that. Do you believe that your life is broken? Now, you might not think so, your friends might not think so, but religious or secular, we're all living our lives looking for salvation, aren't we? The religious in good works to pay for the guilt and shame, the secular trying to earn their worth and value in their pursuits and possessions. We live in a world where people all around us every day, in our city, in our universities, in our schools, every day, we live in a world where people are trying their hardest to find their salvation in something that will give them security and significance in life. Your life is actually more broken than you realize. You need salvation. You're actually looking for salvation, whether you are a religious person or whether you're a secular person. And Paul says the good news is that God's promise to do something to fix the deepest brokenness in our world and in our lives has come in Jesus. So the first thing he says. The second thing, notice verse 3, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. The good news isn't just that God promises to save in Jesus, but God promises to save in Jesus, his chosen king. Right? He promises to save in Jesus, his chosen king. And so the good news is the announcement that God's promised king who saves in Jesus has come. Um, in the Old Testament, God made promises to David, right? David, uh, in the Old Testament, in the history of the kings, he's the greatest king, okay? Uh, and, and God made promises to David that one day, a son of David would sit on his throne and rule forever. And Jesus is that son. Again, there's a couple of verses there for you to look up. A kingdom rule that will be marked by peace and justice and righteousness forever, and so one of the most famous passages is actually Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to verse 7, right? We do it every Christmas. Uh, that, that passage describes the rule of the son of David who comes to sit on the throne forever. And it's a rule, notice, marked by lasting peace and justice and righteousness. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to verse 7, let me read that for us. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the rule of God will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of His government and, and peace, there will be no end. And then it says, He will reign on David's throne because He's a son of David and over David's kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. See that? And so the promise is that God's King who brings peace, justice, and forever, and righteousness and forever has come in Jesus. Do you know that kind of rule is the longing of every culture and nation, is the longing of every human heart to know a rule and a kingdom and a power marked by peace, justice, and righteousness. Now, for that to happen, you need someone powerful enough to make that happen. Isn't that true? To have lasting peace, justice, and righteousness, you need someone powerful enough to make it happen. Do you know in the Marvel Universe, it's the Avengers that accomplish that? Because in the Marvel Universe, the Avengers, they bring an end to the rule of Thanos. They restore the universe. They bring peace, justice, and righteousness. In the DC Universe, it's the Justice League that accomplishes that. In the Chronicles of Narnia is the sons and daughters of Adam who accomplished that, bringing an end to the endless winter under the rule of the White Witch. In the Lord of the Rings, it's Aragorn, the heir of Isildu, who ushers in the fourth age, a reign marked by peace, justice, and righteousness. Do you know, if you study the great myths of culture, the great stories in every culture, it is a longing of every human heart. It's reflected in the myths and the great epic stories of every culture. And Paul says the good news is that the hero of heroes, the true king above all kings, who brings what every heart longs for, what every culture longs for, what every nation longs for, has come in Jesus, God's chosen king. Thirdly, look at verse 4. Who through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, and so the good news isn't just about God's promised King come to save in Jesus. It's also about God's powerful Son who establishes His victory and rule over all by His resurrection from the dead. Right? He establishes His lasting rule by conquering death. Now, why is that important? Well, death is actually the ultimate brokenness in our world, isn't it? Death is actually the enemy of enemies. Death is the ultimate poverty, is the ultimate sickness. Death is actually the ultimate pain and suffering that haunts us. It's actually the one power that rules all people, even if you ignored it. <laughs> I shared last week at the Bowen campus, uh, in the words of the poet Dylan Thomas, uh, reflecting really the, the echo and the desire or the grief of every human heart. Dylan Thomas writes, we, we do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Why? Because in every human heart, we rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. True of your life, true of my life. True of the religious, true of the secular. Even if you're not a Christian and you believe there's nothing beyond death, right? Because there are people in our world who believe death is nature at work biology playing its course, it's the circle of life. Notice what happens when they meet death and they experience death, right? It grieves. Why? Because, because death robs you of life and the life of the person you love. You don't comfort your tears 
or the tears of someone you love who has lost a loved one by saying, hey, it's nature at work, get over it. You don't go, it's biology at work, it's just part of the circle of life, that's no comfort. And so it's crazy, isn't it? Because your head can tell you it's nature at work, biology running its course, but your heart tells you something is wrong. Death is so wrong because it robs you of life and it takes away people you love. And so I want to say to you, death is the ultimate brokenness in our world and our lives. And unless someone is able to conquer it and subdue it and reverse it, there can be no lasting salvation. Do you know that? Paul says the good news is that God's promised king has come to save in Jesus and he has established his rule and his victory overall by conquering death, subduing it, reversing it by his resurrection from the dead. And so if Jesus has triumphed over the enemy of enemies, if he has subdued the power of death, if he has reversed the ultimate pain and suffering, a resurrection from the dead, it would be life-changing news, wouldn't it? Well, Paul says he has. Paul says he has. Church, this is why the good news is life-changing news. It's the greatest news you ever hear. Because if this is true, it means your life and my life can never be the same. It's about God's promise to fix the brokenness in our world and our lives. It's good news about what God has come to do in Jesus, His chosen King, right? It's, a, it's good news about the triumph, uh, His triumph over the ultimate enemy of enemies, overcoming the power of death, reversing the ultimate pain and suffering in His resurrection. It's good news because it's actually the power of God to save in Jesus. Not through your works, not through your achievements, not through your morality, not through your social standing, but through Jesus' work. Worth and value is not going to be found in your pursuits, people, or possessions in your life. It's a worth and value not worked for, but gifted to you. It's a security and significance not earned, but given to you. It's forgiveness and acceptance, not by making up for it, but received. Or as Paul says in verse 16 and verse 17, a righteousness received by faith. And in the coming weeks, we'll see how that works. It was good news for Augustine, the rebel, the irreligious. It was good news for Luther, the religious. It was good news for Paul because it changed him. It changed them. It defined how they saw themselves, how they lived their lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, has the gospel come to us like that? Has the gospel come to you like that? As life-changing news. The greatest news ever. The best news ever. And then he writes, if we cannot say that, it may be because we are not really converted. If it's not the best news ever in your life, maybe, just maybe, you're not converted. Regardless of what we confess. Or maybe we do not really appreciate the gospel because we have not understood the depths of our sin, our brokenness, our need for salvation, the fact that our, our, our desire to find it in people, pursuits, and possessions have failed us. Maybe we haven't recognized not just the depths of our sin and the failure of trying to find salvation in our works, but we also don't see the depths of God's grace. So true, isn't it? That's why Augustine, Luther, and Paul, they let go of everything else in their life because they understood their need for salvation. Do you? 
You know, I actually think the reverse actually applies to us in this room. I think the reason why so many of us are defined or we continue to be defined and shaped by our work and our career and our academic achievements, why we define ourselves by our professional recognition, by our finances, our social status, why we define ourselves by our love relationship. The reason why so many of us find our worth and value in these things is because we actually think these things can save us. The reason why the, the vast majority of us find our security and significance in people, possessions, and pursuits is, is because we actually think we can save ourselves. We actually think we can save ourselves. That's the reason why the gospel for many of us is just news. It has never come to us and filled our hearts as good news. That's the reason why we've never received it as life-changing news, because we think we can save ourselves. If you're humble this morning, you begin to realize you can't save yourself. Maybe you are here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian. Maybe for the first time you come to the realization you're trying to save yourself through your works. Trying to find your worth and value in your pursuits, your security and significance in your achievements. And you know, you look at your life and you realize it's not working. You just can't save yourself. Augustine realized that. And maybe today you hear the gospel as good news, life-changing news. Or maybe you listen and you go, you know, this is too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Well, can I say it isn't too good to be true? Because it is true that's you, maybe today is the first step you take in trusting Jesus to save you. Or maybe if you're a regular here, right, many of you here, you know the gospel, you're a regular at church, but you know you have never received it really as life-changing news, or maybe it used to be good news for you, but now it's old news. You've been here a long time. It's old news. The gospel is something you believe, but apart from Sunday, it does very little in your life. You spend the rest of your week looking to find your worth and value in your pursuits. Ooh, you know, the ultimate job, the ultimate love relationship, that ultimate career position. You spend your week trying to find your security and significance in being recognized, in belonging to a particular tribe, in being seen and, and approved of in a certain way. You spend your week trying to make up maybe for your failures, trying to pay for your guilt, for your shortcoming, always trying to be good enough but never good enough. You spend your life basically looking for salvation because even though you know the gospel, you've actually never received the gospel as good news, life-changing news. Maybe if you're regular at Grace Point, you need the good news more than you realize this morning. And the first step today is to recognize that you will never be able to save yourself. In your work, in your love relationships, in a career, in your academic status, in possessions, in popularity, in friends, in financial success, whatever you think will save you, none of it will save you. Maybe for you today, you will receive the gospel not as old news, but good news, life-transforming news. In a moment, we're going to actually celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is an opportunity to do just that to receive the gospel, not as old news, but the best news ever in your life. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we come to you in a spirit of humility and repentance. Forgive us because we look for salvation 
our worth, our value, our security, our significance in people, pursuits, and possessions. And we know they fail us, yet we live our lives in this constant cycle of trying to find our salvation in our works, in things. And all we find ourselves, each day we find ourselves in a cycle of endless work with no rest. We find ourselves crushed. Today, Father, we come and we want to receive the gospel as good news, as life-transforming news, as restful news. Because in the gospel is the power of God to save. In the gospel is your promises to come to meet us where we are in the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of our world, coming to actually give us the worth and the value we so seek, the security and the significance we so desire, the forgiveness and the acceptance we so desperately need. Amen.